Good evening. It's good to see you. It's good to be here, and I've been looking forward to this meeting for quite some time. Uh, Brother Brent suggested I might introduce myself since some of you don't know me. Uh, Some of you are my home folks, so you know exactly who I am. But uh, my name's Ian Jones, and I live in Pampa, Texas, and work with the Somerville Street Church of Christ there and also abroad throughout. Several states in the United States as well across seas. Uh, my wife's name is Toya, and uh, I've got three children, 19, 16, and 12, Van, Kennedy, and Olivia, respectively. Uh, they are my joy, and uh, I'm glad to be here, and I, I wish they were with me. I don't know. We have a big band of snow coming at home. Maybe they were afraid of that. I don't know. Maybe they're afraid of my driving. That could be it too. But, but I'm glad to be here and glad to share this time with you. And I, I truly hope that this time will be a benefit to you. It'll be a blessing to you. Uh, I believe it will because, not because of my speaking ability, but because as we look into God's word, if we will view it with an honest and open heart, we will be blessed by it. Amen. And I want to begin tonight with a study that I've entitled, When the Word Won't Work. And uh, y'all don't have tomatoes, but if you did, don't throw them. Uh, I, I realize the title is a little bit of a tension grabber, and, and I hope you'll understand why I entitled our lesson that in just a moment after we read this first scripture. Most of the scriptures will be on the screen for our convenience and for time's sake. I am going to ask you three separate times to grab your Bible or your electronic device and, and read along with me, and I'll prompt you once we get to those moments. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13 Paul writing to the church at Thessalonica says, For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing. I want to stop right there and really think about those words. Paul said there is a reason, there is something in your life that causes us to continually thank God. That ought to grab our attention. Why was Paul so thankful to God For the Christians at Thessalonica. He says this. Because when you received the word of God. Which you heard from us. You welcomed it. Not as the word of men. But as it is in truth. The word of God. Which also effectively works in you who believe. Paul said here's why we thank God. And we don't cease to thank God. Because when we came and we delivered the word of God to you. You received it just as it is the word of God. You welcomed it. That is, you received it. And he wasn't just thankful that they did receive it. He was thankful in the manner that they received it because it wasn't just the word of men. It was, as in truth, the word of God. Now, I want you to notice, which also effectively works in you who believe. So I want to ask you tonight, what do you think about the Bible? You know, I I talk to a lot of people about the Word of God, and people have different ideas and opinions about God's Word. Some people say, well, you know, the Bible, it it is a very good book of wisdom and suggestions. 
Even some people who wouldn't really call themselves a believer say, you know, the wisdom, the archaic wisdom that is in the Bible, that is wisdom that we can go to and we can look at the wisdom, we can live our life and we can be blessed by it. Some say, well, it's outdated. It's archaic. It has no relevance for us. How could these people who wrote thousands of years ago possibly know about life today? And then there are people, which I I believe this room is filled with people who believe this is the divinely inspired word of truth that's been handed to us by God's Spirit. And when we welcome it, when we receive it and understand what it is, it will effectively work within us. See, that's God's desired effect. Not that we just know what's in this book and memorize what's in this book, but that we would take it and let it root in our heart and change us and transform us into the image of Jesus Christ. God's Word is meant to work. But did you know that sometimes it doesn't? Sometimes the Word doesn't work. You say, well, hold on a minute. Are you suggesting that God's Word can't work? No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying sometimes it doesn't work. And I want to be very clear about this. When the Word doesn't work, it has nothing to do with the Word's effectiveness or its power. In fact, we're told in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. Do you see that? That that phrase, inspiration of God, literally means breathed out by God. That is, what we're reading is the very words of God the Father. And he says it's profitable. It's helpful. It is good for the advancing of something. It's profitable so that we can be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's what the word is. It's, it's profitable. In fact, the word is not just profitable. The word is powerful. In Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 it says, For the word of God is living and powerful. Do you know any other word that's living? And when I, when I say living, when the, when the Bible uses the term living here, it doesn't mean like a living document, like it changes and transforms. It means it has life-giving power. It's living. It's active. It's working. You ever read a book and been impacted by it? I don't, I don't mean the Bible. I just mean a book. I have. You know, I've, I've read books written by men. They're, they're just books. They're not, they're not the words of God. They're not inspired. But, but, you know, some of those things, they touch us, don't they? They move us. But they're not like God's word. I want you to listen to the explanation he gives here. The word of God is living and powerful. Now listen to this. And sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing even to the division of soul and spirit of the joints and marrow. And is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now have you ever seen a two-edged sword? Why would you put two edges on a sword? Not for hacking. Not for cutting but for piercing. And that's what it says. God's word is sharper than any two-edged sword and it pierces. What does it pierce? The deepest part of a man. His thoughts, his intents. The soul, the spirit. I want to ask you a question. Do you always know what your motives are? I don't. I'll tell you, you can drive yourself crazy. God has created our minds to be so complex psychologically. A lot of times we don't even know why we do what we do. But God's word can discern those things. God's word is powerful. 
And it's active and it's living. But I want you to notice what's said earlier in this chapter where he says this, For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them, but the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. There were some people that the word didn't work. It didn't profit them. You say, I thought God's word was profitable. It is. And the question is why? Why is it that the word of God does not profit some? I want you to grab your Bible and turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. We're going to read several verses from Matthew 13. And uh, many of you are going to be very familiar with this. This is where Jesus gave the parable of the sower. And we're not going to take time to read the parable of the sower. Uh, We're actually going to talk about the section of Scripture between Jesus giving the parable and explaining the parable. Because when Jesus gave the parable, his disciples approached him and had some questions. And I want to start in verse 9 because I think it's going to help us understand Jesus' explanation in just a moment. Matthew chapter 13, verse 9. I'm reading out of the King James Version. Jesus said, Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. And I want to stop and think about that for a moment. What did Jesus mean when he said, Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. Do you suppose there were people that day out in the crowd that did not have ears? That's not what he meant, is it? What is he saying? If you've got a desire for truth, if you have a hunger for spiritual things, then listen. Because this is for you. He wasn't concerned with them physically having ears, but having ears that would hear and be attentive to the things of God. Now that's important. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. Verse number 10. It says, And the disciples came and said unto him, Why speakest thou unto them in parables? And he answered and said unto them, Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but unto them it is not given. For whosoever hath to him shall be given, and he shall have more abundance. But whosoever hath not from him shall be taken away, even that he hath. So they said, why do you speak to them in parables? You know, it would be strange. A lot of y'all don't know me. But can you imagine that every time you and I had a conversation over the next three days that I gave you some type of analogy or riddle about life? You think, that guy's so weird. What is wrong with that guy? He's always talking in veiled, obscure. And, and, And that's a fair question. They say, why do you speak to them this way? Why do you speak to them in parables? And he said, because unto you it's given to know the mysteries of the kingdom, but to them it's not given. Now, on the surface, it may sound like Jesus is saying to them, listen, there's some people that I don't want to understand the truth, and so I'm veiling it. But you know what? He clears that up. He clears that up by saying this. Unto you, my disciples, it's given to know the mysteries. What's a mystery? You say, that's something that can't be known. No, it's not something that can't be known. It's something that hasn't been known yet. But he's revealing those things to his disciples. But he said, it's not given to them. And here's his explanation. For whosoever hath, to him shall be given. But whosoever hath not, from him shall be taken away even that which he thinks he has. That clears everything up, doesn't it? You say, I have no idea what he's talking about. That's why it's important we back up and look at verse 9. Who hath ears to hear. So when Jesus says, whosoever hath, 
To him shall be given. He just said to them, unto you it's given to know the mysteries of the kingdom. And here's his explanation of them. People who have ears to hear will be given understanding about the mysteries of the kingdom. But people who don't have ears to hear, the understanding they think they have is going to be robbed from them. You know why? Look at verse 13. Therefore, speak out to them in parables. Because they seeing, see not. They seeing, see not. And hearing, they hear not. Neither do they understand. And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which saith, By hearing ye shall hear and shall not understand, and seeing ye shall see and shall not perceive. For this people's heart is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing. Now listen very closely. And their eyes, they have closed. You know why people often have no impact in their life when they read the Word of God? Because they've closed their eyes, they've shut their ears, and they've hardened their heart. That's why. I'll tell you, when I read the Scriptures, I see God. Do you see God? Do you see His wisdom? You know, a lot of people don't. They, they look at the Bible and they think, I, I don't understand this. Sometimes that, that's just because they, they just don't understand. They don't know how to understand. I noticed you all having a, a hermeneutics type session. I saw that on the board earlier. That's fantastic. People need to know how to look at God's Word and understand God's Word. But you know, some people just don't understand it because they don't want to. Because it's not fitting with their desires. It's not fitting with their worldview. They don't want to see the truth. And that's what's happening with these people here. They don't have a desire. If you don't have a desire for truth, I don't care how much time you spend reading this word, it will have no effect in your life. You've got a hunger. You have to desire for truth. And Jesus said, that's why I'm speaking to them the way that I am. Because people that have the desire, they're not just going to hear about birds in the field grabbing seed and rocks in the soil and thorns. They're going to meditate they're going to seek further. They're going to come to an understanding. And that's what's important is understanding. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, he says, then comes the wicked one and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who receives seed by the wayside. You know, it's not just important that we read God's word. It's important that we understand it. And I want to say something. I sympathize with any person who picks up the Bible and reads it and just doesn't understand it yet, because I've been there. I know that frustration that you're feeling. And I want to encourage you tonight. I want to encourage your teachers tonight. I want to read from Nehemiah for just a moment and give me a, please give me a little bit of patience. I'm from West Texas, so I'm going to butcher all these names. <clears throat> but I'll do my best. The Bible records in Nehemiah 8 and 7, also Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Achab, Shebathah, Hodajah, Maaseah, Kalida, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peleiah, and the Levites, which is probably somewhat correct, helped the people to understand the law. And the people stood in their place. Now listen to verse 8. So they read distinctly from the book and the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the teaching or the reading. Now, I don't know why, but I just, for some reason, assumed that when these guys would get up behind a pulpit of wood, which they did, and open up the book and read the law, that they would just read and then go sit down. But that's not what they did. 
They read distinctly. They were careful and precise about what they read. And then it says they gave the sense. What's that mean? They explained the meaning of what they're reading. And if you're a teacher and you get up here and you, you stand before the congregation and you're teaching, I want to encourage you, but also want to admonish you, it is not your job to be a slot filler and get up in this pulpit and just read God's Word. It's our job as teachers to explain the meaning of God's Word so the people can understand God's Word. And never assume that people know what you know. Read it and explain it and help them to understand. That's what God's people have been doing for a long time. And it's our responsibility as teachers not to just be readers of God's Word or slot fillers for some slot on a Sunday or Wednesday but edifying teachers of God's Word. Because people are only benefited when they understand it. Otherwise, it's taken out of their heart. I want to talk to you about a man for just a moment. He was a Jewish man named Apollos. And it's interesting that as Luke records this story about Apollos, which is not a long story... He gives us a lot of background details about this man. And those background details are written there for a reason. So we're going to take some time to look at this. But, you know, when I think about a lot of the important people in Scripture, I I may not know where they're from or any of their background. You know, I don't don't know a lot about Peter. I mean, I kind of have some ideas about where he's from. But there's a lot of details given about this man. And, And I want to look into those for just a moment. It says there was a certain Jew named Apollos born at Alexandria. You know, that probably doesn't mean a lot to us living in 2024. But in those days, Alexandria was synonymous with words, modern modern words like Cambridge, Oxford, Yale, Stanford. You get the point. Some of that's changing, by the way. But you understand what I mean. When people heard Alexandria, they thought educated. Because it was the center of secular learning in the world at that time had the largest library of books in the world. And that's why Luke tells us where he's from. This is a very educated man. Not only is he educated, he's an eloquent man. I bet words just float off his tongue like rivers of silk. He's eloquent. And then it says this, mighty in the scriptures. You know what that means? He's got a good Rolodex up here. He could quote the scriptures. He knew the Bible. He knew the word. you imagine what a powerful preacher this man must have been? And then it says he came to Ephesus. This man, it says, had been instructed in the way of the Lord. He had training. There's another detail about this man. You got a good idea about who Apollos is? So Apollos is an eloquent man. He's educated. He's mighty in the scriptures, so he knows the Bible. And this man had had some type of training in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in the spirit, he spoke and he taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. Now, let's talk about some other people that get entered into the story here in verse 26. It says, so he began to speak boldly in the synagogue when Aquila and Priscilla, now listen, Aquila and Priscilla heard him. They took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Now, who were Priscilla and Aquila? I'll tell you who they were. They were blue-collar workers. They were tent makers. Now get the scene. Here's this guy who's got a PhD, and he's been to seminary, and he knows a lot more Bible than you do, and you have the audacity to correct this man. See, that's how we look at it today. We exalt education. We exalt intellect. We exalt all these accolades. 
I'll tell you, Apollos did not. This man was humble, and he listened to blue-collar workers who taught him the Word of God accurately, and he repented, and he became a pillar in the church. I'm going to tell you, if you want to learn and you've got a hunger for truth, you will humble yourself no matter what you think of yourself. Because anybody can learn from anybody because truth is truth, period. Sometimes that's a roadblock that causes us to shut our ears. Is we think that the person who's trying to help us understand is not qualified to help us understand. We ought to at least listen. We ought to listen. But pride can be the biggest hindrance. Thankfully, Apollos did not have that as a roadblock for him to know the truth. You know one of the biggest roadblocks we run into? Listen right here. Tradition. We use that word a lot. What is tradition? Well, tradition just simply means the transference or the transmission of beliefs or practices from one generation to the next. So it's what we hand down. It's what we pass along. You know, sometimes there are traditions that that enrich our lives. Sometimes there's traditions that can be roadblocks or they can be a blinder for what we see or what we hear. I, I remember Zig Ziglar used to tell a story about a prize ham that he had won and He'd ask his wife to fix it. She'd cut the end off of it. Maybe you've heard this story, but I think it'll help us understand something about tradition. And he asked her, he said, why did you cut the end off of this ham? And she said, well, I don't know. That's what my mother always did. And he said, well, call your mother. Let's talk to your mother. And they called their mother. And, 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 and her mother says, well, I don't know. My mother always did that. And so that's why I always cut the end off the ham. And they finally called grandma. And grandma says, I have no idea why you are cutting the end off your ham. I cut the end off the ham because my pan was this big and the ham was this big. There was a reason for the tradition. I remember a long time ago when you used to go up to the communion table and there'd be a cloth. You remember that? The cloth that was draped over the communion. Maybe y'all still do that. I, I don't have a problem with that. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But you know what? That was a tradition that started somewhere. Is that in the Bible? Where'd that tradition come from? You know, back in the day, we didn't have nice buildings with caulking around the windows and everything being sealed and having air conditioning and all that. And you know what would always make its way into buildings? Gnats and flies. You know the first thing gnats and flies would be drawn to in a church building? The fruit of the vine. So what they do? They covered it up with a veil. But you know, people got sentimentally attached to that. And they go into church and they'll say, why don't you have a covering? What is going on here? Don't you know that represents the linen that was on Jesus' body? No, it doesn't. But see, sometimes what we get used to, it becomes so familiar to us that we think anything else must be wrong. When really sometimes there's just a practical reason for some of the things that we do. You know, the Bible has a lot to say about tradition. One of the things that we see in Colossians 2 and 8, and I believe this is from the New American Standard, he says, see to it that there are is no one who takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception in accordance with human tradition, in accordance with the elementary principles of the world, rather than in accordance with Christ. He said, watch out. Because you can be enslaved to philosophy. Someone can take you captive through some type of philosophy or tradition. We're warned about human traditions you know, in fact, Jesus spoke a lot about tradition. More than anybody else in the Bible, Jesus spoke about tradition. In Luke chapter 6 and verse 39, 
Jesus spoke a parable to them. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into the ditch? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. Now, I'm amazed at what people who can't see are able to do. It's amazing to me that, that the way God's designed this and how our other senses will take over. So don't miss, don't miss the point of Jesus' parable here. This is not a, a uh, criticism of the blind, but he's making a point. He's making a point. Here's his point. What if you're depending on someone to lead you who can't see where they're going? What's going to happen? What's going to happen? You're going to fall into the ditch. Now, listen to verse 40 again. A disciple is not above his teacher. But everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. Now, he's not making a statement about him as the teacher and them being the disciples. He's just making a statement about mentorship that we need to listen to very carefully. When you have a mentor and you are thoroughly trained by that mentor, you know who you're going to be like? Your mentor. Even if that mentor is blind. That's his point. You've got to watch out who you follow. No matter how much you love someone, no matter how much you respect that person, you've got to be very careful about who you allow to be your mentor. Because you can love them so much, they can be blind, and if they train you, you will also be blind. But he doesn't stop there. Notice what else he says. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not perceive the beam in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, brother, let me remove the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the beam that is in your own eye? Hypocrite. First remove the beam from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck that is in your brother's eye. You say, oh, I remember this. This is about judgment, about hypocritical judgment. It is, but what else is it about? What is the common word you see in this? The eye. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 13 about the eye? If your eyes are closed, you can't see the truth. What's he talking about here? What we start with, the blind leading the blind. People who can't see leading other people who can't see. And what's he talking about here? Seeing clearly. And this is somewhat of a ridiculous analogy when you think about it. Imagine that you're trying to do eye surgery on someone to remove a piece of sawdust when you have a tube of four sticking out of your forehead. Oh, excuse me, you've got a little something right... Oh, we got that lucky for you. And they're going, you don't, you don't see that thing? No, you don't. You can't see clearly. It's in your way. What was their beam? That's the question. What was their beam? It was tradition. That's what it was, tradition. Traditions that they had come up with Traditions that were according to men. I would like to ask you to turn with me to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. We're going to read the first five verses of this in the beginning because this is Mark giving us a little bit of background information before he tells us the story. And, and I'm thankful for that because it helps us understand this, conversa- this conversation that Jesus had with the Pharisees. Mark chapter 7, we'll start verses 1 through 5 and talk about them. It says, Then came together unto him the Pharisees and certain of the scribes, which came from Jerusalem. And when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is to say, with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the Pharisees and all the Jews, except they washed their hands oft, eat not, holding the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the market, except they wash, they eat not. And many other things there be which they have received to hold as the washing of cups and pots, brazen vessels, and of tables. 
Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why walk not thy disciples according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashing hands? So let's pick up some of the narrative here. Mark tells us that these people do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding the tradition of who? Of the elders. Now, notice verse 5. Then the Pharisees and scribes said, Why walk not thy disciples according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashing hands? Now, here's the problem. Now, I'm, I'm one of the people, and maybe you're like me, probably feel like people should wash their hands before they eat. Is that reasonable? I can get unreasonable about that. Because we have a lot of kids in our house. You know what kids do, right? They touch everything. Wipe their face, their nose, and then they want to come and touch your food. And I just think that's crazy. And so I tell the kids when they come in the kitchen, hold, hold on, <laughs> go wash your hands. Is that reasonable? Let me give you another scenario. Let's say somebody comes in there and touches the food, and I say, did you just touch my food with your dirty hands? You go to your room right now, and you pray for forgiveness. And don't you come out until you learn your lesson. You go, you're kind of psychotic. That's where these people are at. They're not saying, hey, you ought to tell your disciples to wash your hands. I believe it says in verse 3, they found fault. They took something that's practical, that's good, that, that's reasonable. They turned it into a law. And then they bound everyone else to their tradition. That's a problem. You don't think that's a problem? Let's read Jesus' response. Verse 6. He answered and said unto them, Well hath Isaiah prophesied to you hypocrites, it is written, This people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Howbeit in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. It was fine to have their tradition, but what's not fine is to teach their traditions as doctrine. To teach their traditions as commandments. But that's what they did. And he says this, verse 8, For laying aside the commandments of God, you hold the tradition of men as the washing pots and cups and many other such like things you do. And he said unto them, Full well you reject the commandment of God, that you may keep your own tradition. For Moses said, Honor thy father and thy mother, whoso curseth, curseth father and mother, let him die the death. But ye say... If a man shall say to his father and mother, it is Corban, that is to say, a gift by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, he shall be free, and ye suffer him no more to do aught for his father and his mother, making the word of God of none effect through your tradition, which ye have delivered, and many such like things you do. What did Jesus say to them about their tradition? He said, well, firstly, he said, you lay aside the commandments of God that you may hold your tradition. Now, you saw the picture on the screen when tradition was up on there. And the reason I put that is because that's a family tradition that we've had is carpentry work. I'm a fourth generation carpenter. And there were always two ways to do things. There was my dad's way and there was the wrong way. Right? Guess how he learned? Same way. Guess how my grandpa learned? Same way. And I got out on my own and started doing work. I thought, there's other ways to do this and easier ways to do this. But you know, I've learned something in doing woodwork, and that is you can never have enough clamps. If you've done woodwork, you know that, right? You can never have, if you've got a thousand, you need a thousand and one. Because you don't have enough hands. 
But sometimes you're just forced to prioritize. And so you got two hands and they're both full and you got to go, well, I got to make a decision here on what I'm going to hold. And you, so you make a decision, you, you prioritize and you go, this is the most important, I'll hold that. You get the picture? Here's what they did. When faced with a decision, will we hold the tradition or will we hold the word of God? No. That's a problem. When I must put the word of God down in order to hold my tradition, I've got a huge problem in my heart. In fact, he said, full well you reject the commandments of God so that you can keep your tradition. And he gave him an example of that. God said, honor your father and mother. But somehow you, within your wisdom, have found a legal loophole so you can say, well, I would do that, but I've gifted that to God, and so I have no obligation to help my father and mother. And he said, and what you've done is you've, through your tradition, you've made the word of God of none effect. Because, see, the word of God was meant to bless people. And when you find a way around and you use it selfishly, or you use it for your own self-righteousness, or you start holding other people to your own personal standards, you've got a real problem. Because that's not what the truth is intended to do. You say, man, you've got a problem with traditions, Ian. No, I don't. I really don't. In fact, they're good traditions. Notice what Paul said in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He said, therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you have been taught, whether by word or epistle. There are traditions that are rooted in Scripture. And those are things we should hold. They're things we should follow. They're things we should use. What I'm saying is this. Every single tradition that we have, I don't care who held it, how old it is, or whose grandpa taught it to us, every tradition should be weighed by the Word of God. Every tradition. Because I'll tell you, we do not want to end up being in the same place on tradition as the Pharisees. They were the one group of people that Jesus had no patience and no tolerance. You know why? Because they knew better. They knew better. But they were so loyal to each other. They were so infatuated with puffing one another up and getting the praise of men and being more righteous than other people that they began to hold other people to their own personal standards. And if that's us... We must repent. We must repent. Because God will not be pleased with us. Turn with me to the book of James. James chapter 1. I've got verse 25 up here. We're actually not going to read all the way through that, but I hope that in your personal study you'll take time to go read all this passage. <coughs> There's going to be some familiar verses here, and I'm going to make a confession to you. I I believe that contextually I misused one of these verses for years and years. And I'll tell you about that in just a moment once we get there. We're going to start in verse 18 to pick up some context and talk about this passage from the book of James. It says in verse 18, Of his own will he begat us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. When you read verses 19 and 20, what enters your mind? What always entered my mind was, okay, if I'm talking to someone, I need to ensure that I'm listening, that I close my mouth, and I don't get angry, right? 
That's really good wisdom. And you'll see that all throughout the book of Proverbs, that's not what James is talking about here, though. This isn't about you speaking to me or me speaking to you. Of his own will, he begat us with what? The word of truth. That we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Wherefore? What's that word wherefore mean? Because of what I just said. In correlation with what I just said, let every man be swift to hear what? The word. Let every man be slow to what? Speak. And slow to wrath. You say, I don't don't get that. Well, I'll tell you. Look at the next set of passages. Verse 21. Wherefore. There's that word again. Wherefore. Lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. Maybe this will be easier to understand in application. In Acts chapter 2 verse 37 it says, When they heard this they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? You know, the gospel of Christ that day, like a two-edged sword, it penetrated the hearts of thousands of people. And you know what it did? Wherefore, laying, all aside, laying aside all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. That's what happened here. These people received the word with meekness, and what happened was they were saved that day. But you know, here's another group of people. Acts chapter 7, 54. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Same thing. And they gnashed at him with their teeth. You remember what happened in Acts 7? I'll tell you what happened. The wrath of man murdered Stephen, our brother. That's what happened. You know why? Because people can have two reactions to the word of God. They can be humbled by it. They can receive it with meekness. And it'll change their life. Or they can hear it and get angry. They can shut their ears and open their mouth and rebuttal and say, yeah, but... And get angry. And listen, the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Ever. But you know what happens? People open up the word and they read the truth and someone says, that's offensive. I'm offended. Okay, be offended. But it's still the truth. And your wrath will not produce righteousness. It won't bring you one speck closer to God. What will is to humble yourself and in meekness go, it's the truth. And I need the truth. I need the truth more than I need my pride. See, God's word only works in the heart of the humble. The Bible says the way of the fool is right in his own eyes. But he who heeds counsel is wise. You know who the hardest person to teach is? The smartest guy in the room. Isn't that ironic? You'd think the guy with the highest intellect would always be the one that had the easiest way of learning. But that's not how it works. And I'll tell you why. Because usually the smartest guy in the room is not really the smartest guy in the room. He just thinks he's the smartest guy in the room. So he doesn't care what you say. We've got to listen. He who heeds counsel is wise. We have to disabuse ourselves of the notion that we already know everything. Because we don't. I want to end with a story from John chapter 6, and maybe I'll push the right button here. I think I did. 
You remember Jesus fed the thousands. And at this point, he had what we might call a rock star status. There was a huge multitude of people that was following around, uh, following Jesus around. And, and after Jesus fed the thousands, he said, let's, let's go, guys. Let's get away. And I'm paraphrasing here, but he said, let's get away from the crowd. And so they did. They got in the boat. They get away from the crowd, and they get there. And lo and behold, here comes the crowd. And there they are again. And so Jesus begins to talk to them. And he says, you're here because you ate the loaves and were filled. He said, your fathers ate man in the wilderness and they're dead. And I have bread that if I give it to you and you eat it, you will never die. You know what they said? That's the bread we want. Give us that. From now on, you give us that bread. And Jesus says, okay, I am the bread. I am the bread of life. And they went, huh? Again, I'm paraphrasing. How can this man give us his flesh to eat, they said. Jesus said, in fact, my flesh is meat indeed and my blood is drink indeed. Well, that, that's contrary to the law of Moses. We can't drink this man's blood or eat his flesh. He was testing them. You know what the reaction was? It says, therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? When Jesus knew in himself, listen, that his disciples complained about this. He said to them, does this offend you? You ever notice that, that word there? His disciples? Who was complaining about what Jesus was saying? His disciples. He said, does this offend you? Man, I bet it did. Because <laughs> that was hard to hear. Wouldn't that be hard to hear? You said, well, I understand that. Would you have understood that if you'd have been there that day? I get it. We understand the, sim the symbology and the figurative significance and all the... We understand that, right? But if you'd been in the crowd, give them a break. Wouldn't that be hard to hear? Be hard to hear. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. You know what? A lot of people, their idea today about church is marketing. It's all about numbers. It's all about filling the pews. And I, I would think people would look at what Jesus did here in John 6 and say, you know what? That's not very good evangelism, Jesus. I mean, you made those people upset and they left. That's right. He sure did. He made them upset. He knew he'd make them upset when he said it. He knew it would offend them. And he said it. You know why? Because it's true. And he knew their motive. He knew their intention. And they quit walking. They quit following Jesus. They wanted all the physical blessings that God had offered them. They did not have ears to hear, though. But Jesus looked at the twelve and he said, Do you want to go away? You know what Peter said? He said, well, of course not, Jesus. We understood everything that you said. The body and the blood. We get all of it. We understand. That's not at all what he said. You know why? Because they didn't understand. They didn't even know Jesus was going to go die. They didn't get it either. But here's what Peter said. Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You know what Peter's saying? Lord, we didn't get it. 
We didn't get it. But here's what we do get. We're not going to leave, not because of what you said, but because of who said it. Because we know who you are. Doesn't matter if it's hard to hear. You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. You have the words of eternal life. I'm going to tell you, if you open up the Bible and you really humble yourself and you open up your eyes and your ears, you will hear some hard things. You'll hear some things that offend you, that, re- that rebuke you, that reprove you, that will say, you're not right. You're not living right. You need to change. Don't walk away from Jesus. It's hard to hear. But understand, it's who said it that matters. And if Jesus says it, it matters. If Jesus' apostles wrote it, it matters. Because it is the divinely inspired word of God. Friends, buy the truth. And do not sell it. Also, wisdom and instruction and understanding. Do you have what you might consider treasures at your house? Now, don't think treasure like chest full of gold. We're not talking about pirates here. You know, the word treasure means something you hold of high value. I've got way too many guitars to be, to admit a fault here. I've got way too many guitars, more than I got hands. <laughs> you know, a lot of those guitars, they were cheap. They're stuff I've obtained over 25 years of playing guitar, and some of them are not that special. And I've got one, though, that was given to me by a brother in Christ, and it's worth quite a bit of money. It's an old 63 Gibson Melody Maker. It's beautiful. You know, it's aged very well, but it's beautiful. You know, if somebody came in my house and they said, Ian, I'm going to give you $20,000 for that guitar. It's not worth that. But I wouldn't sell it. If my family was starving, maybe. But we're probably not to that point, okay? You get that? It has an intrinsic value. It's worth so much. I don't know. Maybe there's a monetary value that I go, okay, I'll sell it. But I'll tell you, that's special to me because of who gave it to me and because of what it means to me. You got things like that? That's the truth. That's how the truth is. There's nothing that you should sell the truth for, but you know people do it all the time. They do it because of family. They do it because of sin. They do it because of tradition. They do it because of pride. And I'll tell you one thing. If you sell the truth and you buy something else, you're going to regret it one day. Because the truth is so important. No matter what price it costs you, you'll pay that price, you'll obtain that truth, and you will hold it, and you'll hold it for the rest of your life until you stand before your God on the day of judgment. Friends, I don't know what's in your heart. I can't read your motives. But maybe you have been resisting the gospel of Jesus Christ for some time now. And I want you to really think about that. If you know what you need to do to be saved and you haven't done that, what is your reason for that? Is it one of the things we've talked about tonight? What has caused you to close your eyes and shut your ears and harden your heart against the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because, see, God wants it to penetrate you, to penetrate your heart, to change your life, and to bless you beyond belief. Friends, we offer the invitation of Jesus Christ tonight. If there's one here tonight who needs to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, we plead with you, let that word work. Let it work in your heart and come and be saved by it. Come as we stand and we sing.
Amazing love, how can 